This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Jason Goodyear, commissioning editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night, unable to move and noticed a sinister presence in your bedroom? If so, it sounds like you've suffered from sleep paralysis, a kind of sleep disorder or parasomnia. In this week's episode, we speak to Dr. Alice Furman, a lecturer in creative writing at Aberystwyth University. Her research focuses on representations of sleep in science and culture. She tells us how scientific attitudes towards sleep disorders have changed over the years, what the latest thinking on treatments is, and what she learns about her own sleep disorders while writing her latest book, Night Terrors, Troubled Sleep and the Stories We Tell About It. So yeah, your book's all about something called parasomnias. So first, by way of starting, what exactly are parasomnias? Parasomnias is an umbrella term for any sleep disorder that involves involuntary movement or hallucinations. So apart from things like insomnia and snoring, it's a very specific type that involves dreaming, REM disorders. It's sort of when your your brain wakes up to some extent while you're still asleep and it forms these hallucinations and hallucinatory experiences. So I think most people listening will have either experienced these themselves or they'll at least know somebody that's experienced them. But, you know, how common are they? Really common, actually. Um, a survey was done a, a couple of years ago and they found that around about 70% of us will experience these at some point in our lives, even if it's just once. It's, it's 70%. Although I have a feeling that it's actually much higher than that and that a lot of parasomnias because they're so stigmatized and have such a a strong association with the supernatural and with madness to some extent I think the amount of reporting that goes on is much lower than what we actually experience and and to some extent some people don't even know that what they've experienced is a sleep disorder they think they've really been abducted by aliens or really seen a ghost or something like that so I think it's much higher but the the figure that we have is is 70 percent 
So obviously, uh, as you mentioned in the book, these parasomnias have fascinated scientists for centuries and, you know, and they continue to do so now. So I thought we could speak in turn about some of the sleep disorders or parasomnias that you mentioned in the book. I think perhaps one of the most common ones is, is sleepwalking. So let's have a look at that. So what's exactly going on when somebody is sleepwalking? So it's a kind of, um, so a lot of parasomnias are, are defined by what's known as a, a sort of micro arousal. Um, and every night we have dozens of these and we don't even realise that we've had them. And so sleepwalking is that peculiar half awake state where the, the brain waves, as we, as we map them, the brain waves suddenly show this a sort of conscious state, but also the brain is still asleep. And so the person will get up out of bed. Um, so it's not associated with, with dreaming in REM because when, we, when we're dreaming, the brain is actually paralyzing the body so that we're not acting out what we're dreaming. And so for people that have sleepwalking, uh, night terrors and REM disorder, these are all parasomnias that involve involuntary movement. So when a person is in that state, that paralysis isn't happening. It's not working. The brain is in a strange half awake, half asleep state. And a person will get up and be convinced of some sort of delusional event that's going on around them that only they know about. But they're awake enough to be able to navigate the house or um, people have been known to, to drive their car, drive a motorbike, which blows my mind. And what's um, associated often with, with things like sleepwalking and night terrors is that the person doesn't remember it in the morning. They have no idea. I remember when I was a child, I used to sleepwalk and my mum would say, you know, you got up in the middle of the night and you were telling me about all this weird stuff. And I had absolutely no memory of it at all. So that's quite fascinating as well. Yeah. So you mentioned their REM and uh, REM behaviour disorder. So for people who don't perhaps don't know what that is, can we define those for me, please? Yeah, so REM, rapid eye movement, it is when we are dreaming our brain is actually sending signals to our muscles depending on what we're dreaming about so say we're dreaming that we're uh, i don't know making a cup of tea that's a really boring dream but say we're making a, a cup of tea in our dream our brain will be sending signals to our arms to pick up the kettle to get the mug down off the shelf whatever that is and obviously for evolutionary reasons but also just for kind of social reasons as well if we're acting out our dreams in bed we're going to hurt ourselves, we're going to hurt other people, we'll fall out of bed and injure ourselves, that kind of thing. So the brain then paralyzes the body. And so it's still sending signals to our muscles, but because we're paralyzed, we can't actually do anything about it. Um, although we can still move our eyes. And it's actually been proven that the way our eyes move in REM sleep is actually wh where we're looking in, in the dream. And people who lucid dream, who know that they're dreaming within the dream, can move their eyes in certain controlled patterns to kind of send a, a signal to people observing them to say, hey, I'm, I'm in a dream and I'm, I know what I'm doing and I'm looking in certain places, which I find really interesting. So that's what REM is. But REM disorder is when that paralysis doesn't happen at all. And so the person is dreaming and they are acting out everything in their dreams. Although in people that have REM disorder, that's quite associated with early onset Alzheimer's and, and neurodegenerative diseases. So if you do have REM disorder, it's probably worth getting, uh, getting checked out for that. But you're essentially just acting out your dreams in bed 
every night and, and hurting your, your partner, hurting yourself um, as, as well. So you mentioned there that there are some examples of people driving a car or riding a motorcycle, but you also mentioned in the book some really extreme cases of people actually committing crimes. Yeah, I, I find that absolutely horrible. I mean, for somebody who does sleepwalk, the, the fact that there is a side of me that gets up and does things and, that I don't know about. But yes, you can chart these, um, these cases. So in the Victorian era, people were starting to understand ideas and states of consciousness more. Experiments and, and theories were, were being put in place in terms of you know, conscious automata theory, thinking about the, the mind in, a, in different ways. And there were cases being put through the, the old Bailey of people that had tried to murder people in their sleep or um, tried to, to do terrible things to other people in their sleep. And suddenly we get a different look at, at these cases and whether these people are actually responsible for the things that they do in their sleep. And so we get this new verdict in the Victorian era called not guilty on grounds of unconsciousness, um, which was used towards the end of the, the 19th century. Um, and that's still in place today, although it does tend to get a little bit problematic as well, because, you know, you could murder somebody and say, oh, well, I did it in my sleep, you know, I wasn't responsible. So I think that's, it's interesting. And I think, but also uh, slightly problematic in, in some respects as well, because how can you really know, um, or, you know, if you're looking at this from the outside, how can you really tell that the person was actually asleep unless they've had tests or they've had, you know, uh, a history of, of sleepwalking? So going from one slightly terrifying thing to another, so a lot of us have hallucinations in our sleep and uh, these fall loosely into two categories, don't they, like hypnagogic and hypnopompic. So could you explain what those are and what the differences are first, please? Yeah, so hypnagogic comes from the Greek, I think, um, to mean as you're coming out, uh, as you're going into sleep. So hypnagogic, you're going into sleep. And you have, um, I mean, we all have these and they don't seem to have any kind of stigma attached to them. So we're readily uh, admitting that we have these. And so hypnagogic uh, hallucinations are those little flashes that you get just as you're drifting off to sleep. You have little flashes of light or you might see faces just pop out, you know, in your, your mind's eye. Sometimes you get uh, what's called a hypnagogic jerk, which I hate, where you're just falling asleep and you, you kind of see yourself walking or uh, getting out of a car or just something like that. And suddenly you feel like you're falling and you go, and you wake up and you go, um, so that's a hypnagogic jerk. So hypnagogic as you're going into sleep, hypnopompic is the, the rarer uh, form of, of uh, this sort of twinned uh, hallucination. So hypnopompic, you're coming out of sleep. That's where the, the name comes from. And so you wake up while your brain is still sort of dreaming and it projects all sorts of horrible things into your bedroom. A lot of spiders and snakes, people tend to see insects, snakes, horrible things all over the, the bed sheets. Um, but you can move uh, with a hypnopompic hallucination. You're, you're able to move because you're, you're sort of still, you know, half a, a awake. And so people will brush off these invisible spiders or they might see phantoms, ghosts, horrible goblin things in their, their, their bedroom. Uh, and so that's much more vivid because you think you're awake. With a hypnagogic hallucination, you are falling asleep. But with a hypnopompic hallucination, you think you're awake and you see these horrible things appear in your bedroom. So some researchers have found a common, um, a common root or place in the brain that's common in people that suffer from these hypnopompic hallucinations? 
Yeah, I think there's, well, I think it's quite subjective. And it's from what I found in my research is that there doesn't seem to be a particular reason for uh, that's common to everybody. Um, so it could be that it's a precursor to disease. Um, so things like Alzheimer's, dementia, schizophrenia, Parkinson's is another one. If you're having sleep disorders, it could be that it's, it's the early onset of, of Parkinson's. So it could be something neurodegenerative. They found that it could just be that you have a really vivid imagination and that makes you more prone to having hallucinations because you're able to see things in your mind's eye really clearly or remember sounds, remember smells really vividly. And so you're more prone just to have a hallucination. The other thing is expectation. So if you go to a hotel and someone tells you, oh, that's a haunted hotel, that gets in your brain then and you're more prone to actually have a hallucination or sleep paralysis because you're expecting it to happen. Trauma can affect dreams quite, um, quite badly as well. It's, it's not a case of eating cheese before bed. I think that's the only thing we can rule out. But other than that, you know, it's, it's dependent on life, lifestyle. It's dependent on your history. It's dependent on, um, you know, whether there are sounds that you can hear all the time, you know, that, that are disrupting your sleep or because of some sort of neurodegenerative uh, disease that might be, you know, in its early stages. So you mentioned there sleep paralysis, and this is something that I've never had, but sounds particularly dreadful. So can you, I mean, I understand that you've experienced this yourself. It sounds horrific. Can you explain, first of all, what it is and how it feels like? Yeah, I mean, if you've never had it before, you're probably quite lucky. Although now that we're having this conversation, you're probably going to have it tonight because of expectation. So <laughs> good luck. <laughs> but sleep paralysis, so it goes back to what I was talking about before in terms of REM disorder. So the brain paralyzes the body so that we're not acting out our dreams. And usually in a healthy night's sleep, we wake up just as that paralysis has worn off and we don't even know that we've been paralyzed at all. Most people don't know that this actually goes on at night. You know, you don't realize that, that you've been paralyzed at all. So for those of us lucky enough to have sleep paralysis, we wake up before that paralysis has worn off. It usually happens, you know, kind of in the middle of the night, you know. And so you wake up while your, your body is, is still paralyzed and it feels immensely heavy you feel incredibly heavy you feel that something is actually pinning you down it's not paralysis in a kind of literal sense it feels like something is pinning you down and you can't move it at all um, but it seems to be concentrated on the chest area you feel this immense weight on your chest but because the brain is still in that sort of dreaming state you have a, a hypnopompic hallucination that the brain projects something and tries to come up with a reason as to why you can't move why you feel like there's something on your chest and it's never something nice like you know a nice cat or i don't know like a big basket of crisps or something i don't know it's never <laughs> something really nice you know it's always something really horrible like a hag or a, a witch a demon uh, a burglar that's coming in and, and strangling you and the thing about sleep paralysis is that it's very tactile as well. You feel, so you see something horrible, but you also feel something. So for me, I often feel disembodied hands. It's very horror movie where I just feel hands all, all in my hair, around my neck. I've had some particularly weird ones where I felt as though um, hands have grabbed me by the ankles and yanked me down the bed. Very the horror movie. But then I've woken up properly and I've not moved at all. 
And that's quite odd. But the way that sleep paralysis lifts is that, so you've had this immense weight on your chest and then suddenly that weight lifts and you feel as though you've levitating. It's really weird. You have this sudden weightlessness and you feel this sort of rush upwards and I've had it sometimes where I've, I've thought that I've, I'm stuck to the ceiling or that, I'm a, I've, that I've kind of levitated up and I'm about to crash over the side of my bed. They found that a lot of uh, people's stories of alien abduction, they think they've been abducted by aliens in the middle of the night. They describe this feeling of, of a very heavy weight on them as though they've been pinned down by the aliens. And then they feel this rush upwards, which they say is zero gravity or is beamed up or down from the ship. So if you read a lot of, you know, people saying that they've been abducted by aliens, it sounds a lot like sleep paralysis. And studies have been done to, to try and explain, you know, whether it's a cultural thing that because we're thinking about aliens and thinking about UFOs and it's a big part of science fiction, if that is actually influencing what our sleep paralysis looks like now so yeah this rush uh, is is how it ends this rush upwards which is a very strange sensation yeah you mentioned there about the the aliens and the cultural influence on dreams i thought that was a really interesting thread that's running through your book how like you mentioned a lot of really fascinating victorian studies on you know exactly as you'd imagine on like pretty waif like young ladies sleepwalking and things and their explanations are you know, they go from the obsession with the occult and witchcraft and feeding through to now with aliens and, and science fiction. So there's a really big influence on our dreams from the outside world and our lived experience. You even mentioned um, the the tribe. Yeah, so there's a, a tribe in, in Brazil and uh, an anthropologist was doing some research there and found that the things they were dreaming about were split in terms of, of gender, depending on what both genders felt was a threat to them. So it's part of something called threat rehearsal theory, which is a a fairly recent um, theory about where dreams have have come from, because classically, we still don't know what dreams are, what they do, why we have them. And so this threat rehearsal theory proposes that uh, it's an evolutionary thing where whatever threatens us during the day or might threaten us during the day, we dream about it so that we practice essentially how to deal with these things so kind of in an evolutionary point of view you know if we dreamt about being attacked by a predator maybe in our dream we, we grab a rock and we try and smash it and then if we encounter that in real life we'd know how to deal with it but obviously nowadays you know we have um, recurring dreams about sitting our GCSE maths exam again which hopefully I'll never have to do but if I do I've had a dream about it so I'll know I'll be prepared um, but yeah this this Brazilian tribe they found that this threat rehearsal theory seemed to be quite prevalent with them and so they found that the men were dreaming about threats that they couldn't defend themselves from so they were used to defending themselves from physical predators, leopards, jaguars, big cats, those kinds of predators using weapons. And what they feared were dangers that they couldn't use weapons on. So things like insect, fatal insect bites and snake bites. Those were the things that the men were dreaming about. The women, on the other hand, who weren't used to using big weapons and physical force to defend themselves, were dreaming about big cats and big predators Um, and being confronted by them and having no means to to defend themselves. And they also found that as this tribe was being uh, or having more contact with 
wider Brazilian communities, uh, people from the city um, coming into this tribe, people who were, you know, very different to them. They were having nightmares about these people being aggressive to them because they didn't know how to react to them. It was different to any fre- any threat that they'd experienced before, and so they didn't know how to uh, how to react and respond to them. And so their dreams seemed to be aligned to this threat rehearsal theory that they were dreaming about real dangers to them so that they might be able to practice a way of you know defending themselves from a, a snake bite or a, a big cat or something like that yeah uh, so i've heard a, another sleep researcher saying that something like nightmares are the mother of dreams which i thought was a was an interesting phrase so let's move on to speaking about nightmares then so what there's one specific which is a title of your book, actually, a form of parasomnia is that my brother used to have when we were young, and it's horrible. It's a night terror. So what's the difference between a nightmare and a night terror? Well, the word nightmare is quite interesting, actually, because we use it very differently to how it used to be used. So nowadays, nightmare, we just say that that's a bad dream. You know, if we've, we've had a dream that's not very pleasant, we call it a nightmare. But the word nightmare actually used to mean sleep paralysis very specifically. And the mare part of nightmare was associated with um, a demonic horse. So, you know, mare means means horse. It's kind of an old word for horse. Um, and so people thought that uh, a horse would be possessed by a witch and would come into your bedroom through the window somehow, I guess, um, and trample the sleeper. So they thought that this weight on their chest was a horse trampling them that had been possessed by a devil. And people used to hang things in stables and uh, little charms and, and burn little marks in stables to, to try and prevent horses from getting possessed and, and trampling people. So that's that's the, the nightmare. But nowadays we just seem to, to say it's a bad dream. You know, it's a dream where you're sitting your GCSE maths exam 15 years after the fact or whatever. Night terror is very similar to sleepwalking, but the the clue is in the name in that it's characterized by screaming, by the person having some sort of delusion, some sort of thing that they think is going on, but it's characterized by fear. With sleepwalking, you're just sort of walking around the house, maybe making a sandwich. I, my mum found me once with my hands cupped in front of me because I wanted to give cake to Gwen Stefani. That was, that was my uh, classic sleepwalking uh, example. But it's, it's sleepwalking, apart from when um, people murder each other, obviously, um, murder somebody in their sleep. Sleepwalking tends to be fairly mundane in terms of what people are doing. But a night terror, it is characterised by the need to flee. Whatever the person thinks is going on is usually a really catastrophic, potentially fatal event, and they've got to run away as fast as they can, and they scream. But again, people don't remember that they've done it in the morning. So I talk about my my cousin who has them really badly, and she records herself on on her phone. She's got a sound recorder, and she's just she can just play them and be like, "Oh, that was in a travel lodge," and it's just an ear splitting scream. You're like, "Oh my god." <laughs> So obviously these are most commonly talked about as occurring in childhood, but they can persist into adulthood. And um, there was some research that started in earnest during the First World War about things about post-traumatic stress disorder and and night terrors. Yeah, so um, uh, a a doctor called McCurdy um, was on a ward with uh, a a lot of soldiers, a lot of men from the First World War who um, had been discharged on medical grounds. And he wrote this book called War Neuroses, where um, he was talking about 
shell shock, you know, and, and that was something that was really not being looked at very much. And so he's really at the, at the forefront. He's not the, the first, obviously, but he's, he's certainly at the forefront of taking these things seriously. And he says in this book, you know, we need to take these neurological disorders and symptoms as seriously as if they've, you know, been shot through the, the arm or something like that. So he's, he's you know, really um, pushing this forward. But he charts all these really quite tragic cases of men. Some of them have had a history of, of sleep disorder. So he will say, you know, oh, um, you sleepwalk as a child. And then that had gone away, but come back now suddenly as a result of trauma. But there are cases where he's put, you know, no history of, of troubled sleep. And then suddenly, because of what they've experienced, they are waking up from sleep and, and screaming um, and thinking that they are back on the front and trying to get away. There's, there's one where um, the, the man could actually remember what he'd been dreaming about, which is quite rare, really, with the night terror. But he could remember being at the balcony of the hospital and, and all these bombs falling on, on them. And it was like they were back there um, and, and that terror was was refreshed although what McCurdy does say is that you know um it can be just as you know a, a bullet wound can be uh, treated and sewn up and stitched back together he thought that it would be easy for the soldiers to get over these night terrors and these post-traumatic stress symptoms and then you could just send them back out to the front um which is quite a, a cruel um way of seeing it but even though he you know he was at the, at the forefront of trying to get these symptoms accepted um, as, as just as important as physical wounds there is a sense where he's treating them too much like physical wounds and being like you know they'll, they'll heal in the same way and then we can send them back out um, into the front but yes it, the world war one I, I think that was a real turning point in terms of seeing sleep disorders and parasomnia as something resulting from trauma yeah so as you say um there's we still so much for us to learn about parasomnias and sleep disorders but what the current research now you know what do we have any current treatments that are effective in treating these conditions yeah well just as they are different for everybody in terms of their causes there are different treatments um, as well depending on you know what might be what might be causing it um somebody recently told me that their daughter had dreadful night terrors and they found that it was because of an artificial sweetener uh, called aspartame and as soon as they cut that out of her diet the night terrors just stop completely but there's things like uh, hypnotherapy uh, medication um, but it doesn't seem to work for everybody and I think it is dependent on what is actually causing the the parasomnias themselves but one thing that is being looked at is actually using a type of parasomnia as a form of therapy so lucid dreaming which i mentioned briefly is where you're in a dream and you realize you're dreaming and they've been able to 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 chart the brain waves during a lucid dream and they found that in a normal dream we have a very kind of primary form of consciousness it's very primitive it's very in the moment this is happening we're just going to move forward and see where we go with a lucid dream, that secondary consciousness, which can look forward, can look back at the past, can access you know, all our memories and, and think about things more logically and more rationally, that comes into play in a lucid dream. So we can control the dream to some extent, which is a very strange feeling. 
And so they found that lucid dreaming can be a learned skill. You can learn it, you can practice it, and you can you know, d- develop it as a skill and, and use it more often and more reliably. And so if you are having recurring nightmares, say you, you've had some sort of traumatic experience, I mean, you, the example I give quite a lot is if you've been in a car crash and you have nightmares that you're in the car and that you're about to crash into a tree. If that's the dream that you have every night, these researchers have found that using kind of creative writing, essentially, I'm a creative writing lecturer, so this is why I find it quite interesting. Using creative writing, the um, patient will write down their dream and then change the ending and say, instead of crashing into the tree, I drive successfully around the tree or the tree sprouts legs and walks off or something like that. I mean, in a weird dream, the tree is probably more likely to sprout legs. But (laughs) So they changed the ending so that that normal ending of crashing into the tree doesn't happen. And they learn that and they read it over and over again while they're learning to lucid dream. And then when they find themselves in that dream again, they'll know then, oh, this is a dream. And I know that I've got a new ending for this, which is that the tree sprouts legs and walks off. And they found that this technique is actually having a really beneficial effect. And that even if the patient didn't learn to lucid dream successfully, that practice of actually writing the dream down and changing the ending and sort of reading that over and over again and learning that does actually help lessen the the fear of going to bed, lessen the severity of the nightmare itself. So even if you don't manage to lucid dream, this practice of writing dreams down and kind of changing the ending has had um, measurable therapeutic benefits. There are some other studies as well, aren't, aren't there, that you mentioned with, uh, specifically with um, training motor skills. And the one that you mentioned with throwing darts, I thought was absolutely hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So there was a really fascinating um, study. There's quite a few studies being done, actually, in terms of whether lucid dreams can help us develop physical skills motor skills because you know as i as i said the brain is actually sending signals to our muscles depending on what we're dreaming about so surely there's muscle memory going on and the, you know the training in terms of dexterity and that kind of thing and so there was a really funny study done of people playing darts and they had a, a group of professional darts players and then they had a group of people who never really played darts before but what was common to both groups was that they could lucid dream fairly reliably and, and fairly often and they found that there was no particular measurable benefit. So they got the, the, the both groups to, to play some darts and then go to bed. And then when they were dreaming, they were given the task of practicing playing darts in their dream. And quite a funny bit of like the darts turning into pencils or getting really wobbly and not work. Because that's what a lucid dream is like. You try and control it and it's just stupid. You know, you can control it to an extent, but it's still just like, oh, you want to play darts? Here's a snake instead. This <laughs> is really silly. But they found that after the lucid dreams, the professional darts players hadn't really had any sort of, it, it didn't really change their, their skill. But for those who had never played darts before in any sort of way, they found that they did actually improve because they were dreaming about playing darts and because they were kind of starting from scratch in terms of their darts playing the signals that the brain was sending to the muscles and and the idea of, you know, practicing uh, lining up with the the dartboard and practicing their their balance and all that kind of stuff did actually have a measurable benefit. So they got better at playing darts because they were practicing it in their their sleep, which is fascinating. Yeah, it gives new meaning to the the phrase, I can do that in my sleep. Yeah, absolutely. 
But I suppose in, in the other side of that, it does kind of mean, you know, are we going to start, you know, hacking into sleep and trying to use lucid dreams as a way of being more productive? Yeah. So you mentioned there that this is this is a big area of research and that you can learn how to lucid dream. So how do you learn to lucid dream? Well, I think the first thing is that you have to increase your, your dream recall. So if you're somebody that never remembers their dream, you're kind of starting from scratch, really. And so the best thing to do is to actually write down your dream in a morning, even if it's just, I remember the color blue, or I remember feeling scared, or you know, if it's just a feeling, or if it's just a color, anything at all that you can remember from your dream, write it down, and you'll find that over the, the days, just that habit of writing down your dream and taking a moment of being a bit self-reflective makes your dreams longer, makes them more vivid, makes you better at being able to remember them. And the more that you're able to remember them and write them down, the more you start to notice patterns. So maybe you dream about cats a lot. I dream about trains a lot because I'm a nerd and I love trains, but I seem to dream about trains all the time. And so for me, that's kind of like a symbol. You know, If I'm on a train, am I dreaming? And so if you encounter some of these symbols in, in waking life, you then have to ask yourself constantly, am I dreaming? So while you're writing down these dreams, you also need to get into the habit of asking yourself and being absolutely sure. How am I absolutely sure that I am not dreaming right now? One of the things I do is I pinch my nose and close my mouth. And if I can't breathe, then I'm not dreaming. But in a dream, if I do that, it's really weird. I feel like I'm still breathing through my nose. It's very peculiar. And so that's how I tell whether I'm, if so something weird happens to me and I pinch my nose, it's because I'm not entirely sure if I'm dreaming or not. Um, so you need to, to cultivate this habit of asking yourself all the time. And then you'll find that you actually just sort of organically start to realize that you're dreaming. It just happens completely spontaneously where you're just dreaming about your GCSE maths exam and suddenly you go, hang on. I'm 30. I'm not in high school anymore. And then you're like, wow, no, thank you. Tip the desk over, walk out and don't fly or go meet, I don't know, somebody famous, you know, whatever you want to do. Um, and so it does happen, you know, can just happen spontaneously. But there are other things you can do as well. So if you wake up in the middle of the night, you're more likely to just go straight back into dreaming when you fall asleep again. So if you wake up in the middle of the night, there are little things you can do kind of like with your hands. So if you have your hand on the mattress, you can kind of, if you start pressing your fingers very lightly into the mattress, and then after a while, ask yourself if you're dreaming, you probably have fallen asleep and you're dreaming that you're still on the mattress and then you can get up and do whatever you want. So there are so many different techniques. There's a, a whole Reddit a subreddit forum that's got hundreds of thousands of members and they're all sharing tips and congratulating each other when they've finally done one it's like the holy grail of being on this reddit is actually being able to lucid dream great well i know what i'm going to do tonight <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of instant genius that was creative writing lecturer dr alice Furman. if you'd like to know more about the fascinating science and history of sleep disorders check out her book night terrors Troubled Sleep and the Stories We Tell About It. The current issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy wherever you buy your favourite magazines or visit sciencefocus.com. 